Well, if you were to spend Christmas Day with my family, then you would experience something of the joy of traditions. Uh, There are various things that we do each year, basically because we did them the year before, and the year before that, and the year before that. And we've got a whole lot of little rules that help our Christmas Day work pretty well. One of them is that you're not allowed to open up presents until everybody's out of bed. Uh, Usually that means that the first person up will go and wake everybody else up, which was a hazard when they were much younger. 4am starts, not so good. Uh, Now it's usually us waking them up in the mornings. But what we have also as as a rule is that when we do get around to opening the presents, you don't all just grab all of yours and just rip them open. You actually have to take one at a time. And so it'll be Hugo's turn. Hugo, will, you know, no, okay. And he'll open his up and say, oh, thank you for this. And then we'll do that bit by bit. It just sort of draws the process out a bit. And when you get your present, you have to go up to the person who gave it to you and say, oh, thank you so much, it's really lovely. Um, and you have to mean it. Um, <laughs> and if you happen to be uh, Mandy's dad, there's a standard line that he says, don't rip the paper. Don't rip the paper. That's another one of those things. Traditions, I wonder what your traditions are. You might want to talk about that over dinner. Uh, There are all sorts of different ones when it comes to Christmas and a bunch of other things. One of the reasons that we have traditions, I think, is that they can help us feel connected. Um, They can be powerful when when they help people realise that they're part of something that's bigger than what they are. Doing something that's maybe been a, a piece of history for many years. Now, in our church here, we're not really bound by the traditions of the past, but we we do some things that are a bit traditional. For example, when we say the Apostles' Creed, we make a point of the fact that people have been saying this for like 16 centuries or more, and saying it together connects us with them. And, taking it a step further, by meeting in this church that's 153 years old, which is modelled on churches that are much, much older in other parts of the world, like in Europe, it kind of shows that what we're doing here today is something that is is connected with the past. And I suspect, this is my gut feel here, my gut feel is that in these uncertain times at the moment, there's something to be said for connecting with something that's been around for a little while. And in a kind of environment like that, we get the stability of of being a part of a traditional thing. Uh, Businesses try and do this. You see some organisations like Westpac will say established in 1817, which makes you think they've been around for a while and they're trustworthy. And then you get other businesses that think that it's just really cool to put the word established in their logo, uh, like the brand new restaurant in Shell Cove that says established 2021. And you're thinking, ah, it's trustworthy, it's reliable. Maybe not. But the problem is, the thing about traditions is that the traditions also have some problems. And one of the problems with the traditions is that they can exclude others. And so if the traditions are so fancy and technical that nobody's got any idea what you're doing, especially those who haven't been before, well, they can easily feel excluded and alienated. It's not always the case, but... It can be the case if we're not careful. But another reason why traditions can be a problem is when they become meaningless because they're out of date or redundant. That reminds me of a story was told to me about a person who, when they cooked a turkey, they cut the feet off the bird before putting it into the oven. 
And one day someone said, why do you do that? And they said, because mum's always done it that way. Oh, okay. Have you asked mum? Oh, I might do that. They ask mum and mum says, oh, quite simply, we've got a very small oven and we needed to cut the feet off. There are other traditions that we do also in our families or our schools or our workplaces or our church that, that no longer make any sense. And another problem with traditions is that they can easily turn into legalism. What that means is that something that was once useful turns into a rule that gives a false sense of security. I mentioned this last week in one of the questions, but the, the daily quiet time that Christians have, and that's not a time just being quiet, it's, uh, you know, it's a funny name, a traditional name, for going and having a, a daily Bible reading and praying to God. That's a really good thing to do. And as you've heard me say before, if you're not doing it, I'd really, really encourage you to start to get that into your routine of just being a Christian. But the problem where this, this where, where the tradition becomes a problem is when you start to gauge your entire day's success on whether or not you've ticked the box to say that you've read the Bible. And so you think, if I've read the Bible today and I've had a quiet time, then I can know that I'm going to have a good day. Or, or if I have a bad day and I, you know, I... I, I stubbed my toe or something like that. It's like, oh, I know why. It's because I didn't read the Bible this morning in my quiet time. And the problem with that is that if you think that way about reading the Bible and praying in the morning, then you've just fallen into paganism. The human heart is naturally evil. And so we create these special sub-rules and exceptions to get around the rules, which is where it gets it even worse. And so you might not have time to read the Bible one morning, so you just bring it up on your phone quickly and you just make sure it's there so that the Bible app says, oh, well, that's great, you haven't broken your streak. You haven't actually read the Bible yet, but you think, oh, 100 days in a row, you little ripper, everything's going really well between me and God. But really, it's just a tradition that it's just paganism, really. That's the trap of traditions. It's the lure of the law to say, give me something I can tick and then I know that I'm sweet. And that's a big problem. And if you ever wanted to find a group of people who did this kind of legal loophole lawyer stuff well, it was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were experts at legalism. They were a bunch of people who were Jewish leaders and they just had their whole world based on law, law, law. And we read about them at the start of our journey into the book of Matthew with chapter 15, verse 1, where we read that some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrive from Jerusalem to see Jesus. The bigwigs have arrived from Jerusalem itself. They've travelled all the way down from headquarters in Jerusalem to regional Galilee, and they've done it especially to try and sort this Jesus guy out. And so, verse 2, they asked him, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. Well, they start with the big guns, don't they? They don't wash their hands. Now, if I had a preached on this a couple of years ago, you'd say, oh, who cares about hand-washing anyway? But it turns out it's become a bit of a thing in the last year or two. So, But... This is not related to a pandemic or how to avoid COVID. It's just that they had this special tradition that showed that for a person to be a legit law keeper, you had to wash your hands in a special kind of way. And you had to make sure you did it before eating. 
This is one of the many, many things these Pharisees did. They made up special traditions. It's not something out of the Bible. It's a, it's a thing that a person has said, hey, if we do this hand-washing thing, then if we all keep it, we'll feel good. And then if somebody doesn't keep it, we can ping them. That's what we like to do in our heart. And it's exactly what they did. And they wanted to ping Jesus because his disciples didn't get into the hand sanitizer, or so to speak. But Jesus came back with an attack. Verse 3, he said, And why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? This is, Jesus is not talking to a couple of, you know, just sort of, you know, occasionally go to the synagogue, yeah, well, I'm sort of due, we'll see what happens. These guys are the experts, they're the bigwigs, they're the ones that come in from head office to sort it out. And Jesus says that they have violated the commandments of God. The problem is they keep their religious man-made traditions but don't follow the Bible. And he gives them an example, verse 4. He says, for instance, God says, honour your father and mother. And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. He quotes them from Exodus 20 and Exodus 21. Pretty simple, pretty clear. Be nice to your mum and dad. And then Jesus points out the problem. He says, but you guys say that it's all right for people to say to their parents, oh, sorry, I can't help you, for I vowed to give to God what I would have given you. They have worked out a loophole, a loophole from a rule that enables them to not do what God says. They've used traditions as a loophole. Sorry, mum and dad, I would love to help you out, but I promised it to God and you know, you don't want to get in the way of God, so sorry, I can't help you out at all. It's not a rule that's out of the Bible. It's just something that someone's made up. And they use it to try and get out of the responsibility that they owe to their parents. I reckon there must have been a time when they, they set this rule up as a really useful thing to do and a helpful thing. And a bunch of people said, oh, I know. What if we, what if we have this little sort of a rule thing where, where we can, we can um, you know, make it that we promise a bit or something like that? And, and then that, that is going to help me because I'll be able to, to be closer to God. And they come up with this really rule that, that is good. But then it gets bad. And eventually it gets to the point where it's used to deliberately get around the Bible's clear teaching. And this is the outcome, verse 6. In this way you say they don't need to honour their parents, which is what the Bible says. And so... You guys, you Pharisees, you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. They've come up with these rules and in the end they cancel the word of God. They break the word of God. These are the key leaders of God's people. You'd think these guys would get it right, but they got it so wrong and it is so sad. And so what does Jesus say to them? Does he say, well... Give it a go. See what you can do. You guys are kind of okay. Verse 7. You hypocrites. He says to them, you hypocrites. He calls the Pharisees hypocrites. They are two-faced. They appear to be one thing on the outside, but on the inside there's something else. They're almost like those Christians 
who seem all Christian-y at church. But then they go home and they live life like they're non-Christians. And some of them even stand up in front of church and look all holy and right and they get all preachy about all these people who don't act like Christians should and then they go home and they live totally differently. Now, in a way, it's sort of between them and God and that's it. But where it is really, really sad is when we see kids who see their mum and dad like that. Come along to church and they say, wow, it's like I've got a different dad. Because when I get home, he's nothing like that. He doesn't speak like that. He doesn't act like that. And then they get to the point where they have a choice about whether they'll come to church or not. And they say, well, my mum and dad were fake Christians. I had to be a fake Christian as well. Don't think I am really a Christian. And now you're giving me a choice not to go to church? Simple. I'm not going. It's not just a personal, it's not just a a thing out there, it's actually a thing that relates to people's spiritual lives. And I think this is one of the many reasons that that Jesus can say to these people, you hypocrites. He's not like, oh well, each to his own. No. And then he quotes from Isaiah from the Old Testament. Again, I mean, Isaiah gets a big rap in Matthew's Gospel as we've seen this. And he says, Matthew 7 he says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you guys. Interesting. 700 years ago, Isaiah is making these prophecies about the present. And he says, he says, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What they say with their lips is different to what's in their heart. They say one thing, but they live out another. It's classic hypocrisy. These leaders would say one thing, but doing another. And when Jesus turns up preaching the heart of a relationship with God, what do these hypocrites do? Wouldn't it be great if they said, oh, we've now come into the presence of the Messiah, we recognise our sin, and so we pray that we might be forgiven and no longer be hypocrites. That would be the right thing to do. But no. What they do with all of this is... They basically weaponise the rules against Jesus. They use these rules against Jesus and his disciples. But here's the second half of that quote from Isaiah. And it says, verse 9, their worship is a farce. It's a joke. For they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Nails it. These people of God, the rulers of God's people, they have turned human-made ideas into commands from God. So what they do and how they live will be totally off track. And that's what's caused the problems for them right now. And so with that, Jesus addresses the people in the crowd, verses 10 and 11. We read, he says to the crowd, Listen and try and understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. It's a little parable, just a a one-sentence one, basically. It's sensible advice if you don't understand the spiritual meaning that goes underneath it. Because obviously, being defiled, which is just a fancy way of being spiritually unclean, being defiled really matters by what 
you say from your mouth, not what you eat in your mouth. And Jesus will say more about that in a moment. But then the disciples do what's happened in the past with the parables. They sort of come up close to Jesus and say, <laughs> what were you really meaning? And so they say to him, um, before that, they say, do you realise, Jesus, that you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? It's like Jesus is like, oh, oh, sorry, oops, didn't realise that. Not at all. So I love the naivety of the, the disciples, letting Jesus know that he said something to make the Pharisees upset. <laughs> I think he probably did realise he was doing that when he said, you hypocrites. It's not really a neutral way of saying you hypocrites. Oh, you're a little bit hypocritical, aren't you? You're, just, you're a nice hypocrite. No, <laughs> no. But I wonder if the real message behind the disciples' word to Jesus was that they thought that he'd done the wrong thing by upsetting the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, they had to be respected. They're the big wigs from head office. They're important leaders of God's people, the smart and obedient Jewish leaders. And if, anything, if anyone knows anything about life following the God of Israel, surely these Pharisees were the ones to listen to. That's what Jesus' disciples seem to think. But they've got it wrong. They still haven't understood what Jesus said from his preaching. He's been telling them that life in the kingdom of heaven is different to what the Pharisees are saying. And most of the Sermon on the Mount is about a stark contrast to the way that Israel had been living up to that time. The problem with all of it is that the shepherds of the sheep had let the sheep astray. And so Jesus says to his disciples, verse 13, he replied, Every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted. So ignore them. They're blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Basically, Jesus tells the disciples that these Pharisees are not speaking on behalf of the heavenly Father. And so they should be ignored. Ignore them. Don't listen to them. They're ultimately harmful. Not just neutral, but harmful. Like blind leading the blind. Have you ever heard that expression before? It's like the blind leading the blind. Give me a nod if you've ever heard that before. Yeah, It's just a common way that we say about this stuff. But it's actually quite sad, funny. I mean, it's, imagine what it's like. It's like, oh, I'll, I'll help. I'll show you the way. Come with me. Boom. It's, it's comical. And that's what Jesus says that these guys are like, spiritually blind. Reminds me of a time when I studied John's Gospel at the University of Sydney as part of my arts degree when I was 19 years old and I didn't know better. The reason I didn't know better was that my teacher wasn't a Christian. He was a New Testament scholar with a PhD and a big fat book that he's written in Greek. But he didn't know Jesus. And he was lecturing us about who Jesus was and what it meant to follow him. Fortunately, I sorted everything out when I went to Moore College, where there are lecturers who actually know Jesus. Who'd have thought? Brilliant! But the point is, this guy was spiritually blind. And he was entrusted with teaching people about Jesus. Just like the Pharisees. Spiritually blind. These Pharisees in the first century didn't even know God and yet they were teaching about God 
And so that's why they completely missed the point about purity. Completely. Which brings us back to the hand-washing thing from before. Verse 15. And Peter said to Jesus, Explain to us the parable that says people aren't defiled by what they eat. Can you, can you give us the inside news? And Jesus says to them, verse 16, he says, Don't you understand yet? Jesus asked. <laughs> It's a gent- I, like, I like the NIV. It says, are you still so dull? <laughs> uh, you would think that the, the disciples would have worked it out by now. Why are you still not of understanding, he says. After all, they've seen Jesus. They've heard Jesus. They've witnessed his life amongst them. Surely they've worked this out by now. And surely they'd work out that he was the opposite to the Pharisees. But no, they still hadn't. And so with that in mind, Jesus explains to them the parable, verse 17 to 20. He says, anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands, that'll never defile you. Jesus makes it pretty clear. This is why the Pharisees are so wrong. They're thinking, as long as I go and get my hands sanitised, all the other stuff doesn't really matter. I mean, it's good to wash hands, especially in a pandemic. But the thing is that he basically, the thing is that he is saying that that what holiness is all about is about our heart. Holiness is about our heart. See, you could live in a bubble bath and still not be clean. Or you could live in a rubbish bin and yet be clean. It's not to do with what's on the outside. It's about our hearts and it's what they lead us to do. This is what Jesus cares about. He cares about the unclean, the unholy things we do. These things on this list that obviously we wouldn't do, like murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander. Ooh, wow, that's sort of gone a bit up the list. So just saying something unkind about someone that's not true, that's up there on the list. Ooh, that's a bit close to home. The big problem with all of this is our heart. And the hand-washing of the Pharisees completely misses the point. And ultimately, their leadership of God's people is completely off track. And people need to stop following them. There's not a safe level of following the Pharisees. Anyway, after that, Jesus goes for a journey. Verse 21. We read that Jesus left Galilee and he went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He's headed up north to modern-day Lebanon, out of the land of Israel. Why would he do that? Why would he go up and away, out of the land? Well, he goes there and he meets a particular person who's from that place. We read in verse 22 that a Gentile woman who lived there came to him pleading, "'Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David.'" For my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. This translation says a Gentile woman. Other translations get it a bit more literal and says that she is a 
Canaanite woman. And I think that's not insignificant. They, she represents the people who were in the land of Canaan. Remember what happened? There were the Canaanites and God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you their land. Okay, go in there and that's the spot. And so the Canaanites were thrown out of there. She is not of Israel. She is of Canaan. She is a Canaanite. She's not one of those people. And that's why this statement she makes is so incredible. She calls Jesus Lord, Son of David. Basically, the Canaanite woman says that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, by saying the word Lord, she might have just been saying Sir, maybe. But it's the same word in the original. It might be Lord as a capital L, Lord. But when it comes to saying Son of David, it's pretty clear what she's got in mind. She's recognised that he is the Messiah, the Son of David, the King of Israel. The disciples just seem to be a little bit slow in all of this. They've spent all this time with Jesus. And yet this Canaanite woman, this woman outside of Israel, totally nails it. And because she knows that Jesus is the Messiah... She tells him about her daughter who is tormented by a demon. And what happens next is unexpected. Verse 23. But Jesus gave her no reply. Not even a word. And then his disciples urged him, send her away. Tell her to go away. She's bothering us with all her begging. The the disciples see this woman as a problem. A nuisance. But obviously Jesus is going to just accept her straight away. Wouldn't you think that's what you'd expect to see here? But look what happens. Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. What? How could Jesus refuse her like that? Well, verse 25, she came back, And worshipped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. She is convinced that Jesus is able to help her. And she won't take no for an answer. But Jesus still won't give in. (laughs) It's strange, isn't it? Verse 26, Jesus responded, It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Well, it's probably true. Well, what's that got to do with the price of fish? Well, the thing is that she's, he's basically given this one-sentence parable to say he is there to focus on Israel, not on the Gentiles. Uh, the word dogs to describe Gentiles, it's not a particularly nice way, but everyone knew it. And yet, you'd think she'd get the message. But she didn't give up. This is the nature of her faith. And so she says in verse 27, That's true, Lord, but even the dogs are able to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. She knows she's a dog, a Gentile. She knows she's not one of the children, the people of God. But it doesn't stop her from asking again, Lord, will you just give me the scraps? I know I don't deserve it. I know I'm on the outer. I understand that you're the king of the Jews, the son of David, and I'm not one of them. 
but can you just give me the leftovers? Can you just give me a little bit of something left? What do you think Jesus is going to do this time? Oh, just go away. No. Verse 28. Dear woman, (laughs) dear woman, Jesus said to her, your faith is awesome. It's great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. An amazing story. What is happening here is Jesus is bringing early blessings to the Gentiles. These Gentiles, the the non-Jews, the non-Israelites, they will receive the blessing of the Messiah. They will see the light on the hill of the people of God, as talked about earlier. And they will come, many of them, to find the blessing. But what we see here right now is a woman who can't wait. She is persistent. But why is she persistent? It's because she knows who Jesus is. And she knows what he promises to do. And so she boldly asks. And I think this is a great inspiration for us as well. To keep praying to Jesus. There are other parts of the Bible that say exactly that. Parables that Jesus said. You know, when you pray, you should be like you know the scorpion, all that. You don't know, asking for scorpion fish, you know, all that stuff. But I think here's a reminder to persevere in prayer and to see the mercy of Jesus, the mercy that overflowed from His own special people to those on the outer, the Gentiles, even the woman from Canaan, even the people from. Kaima and from Jamboree and from Shell Harbour and from Wollongong, from Berry and the rest of the place. Well, in the final episode of this chapter, Jesus travels back into Israel. We'll, we'll cover this quickly. And he goes there to be in what is likely to be the Gentile part of the region. Okay, do you get this? He went up to the Gentiles. He did the thing about the Gentile dog thing. And then he goes down back to where he was, it seems he's actually gone to the bit where Jesus went earlier when he cast the demons out into the pigs that went into the ocean, into the sea, right? Seems likely that he's around there in that real solid Gentile part of the world. And he goes there and he does more ministry to those non-Jews. We read from 29 through to 31. Jesus returned to the Sea of Galilee and climbed a hill and sat down. A vast crowd brought him people who were lame, blind, crippled, couldn't speak, and many others. They laid them before Jesus and he healed them all. The crowd was amazed. Those who hadn't been able to speak were talking. The crippled were made well. The the lame were walking and the blind could see again. And they praised, this is important, the God of Israel. See that there? They praised the God of Israel. These were the Gentiles who were not of Israel and they praised the God of Israel. The Gentiles praised the God of Israel. And then something happened that, that is it's familiar to us but is different. Let me read from verse 32 right to the end of the chapter. Then Jesus called his disciples and he told them, I feel sorry for all these people. They've been here with me for three days and they don't have anything left to eat. 
I don't want to send them away hungry or they will faint along the way. And the disciples replied, where would we get enough food here in the wilderness for such a huge crowd? Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? They replied, seven loaves and a few small fish. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish, thanked God for them, and broke them into pieces. He gave them to the disciples, he distributed the food to the crowd, and they ate as much as they wanted. And afterwards, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were 4,000 men who were fed that day, in addition to all the women and children. Then Jesus sent the people home, and he got into a boat and crossed over to the region of Magadan. Is this one of those situations where you're doing your essay and you're copying and you're pasting and you forget to get rid of the other thing and it just keeps in? You know, has, has Matthew just been a bit sloppy with his editing? Uh, no. This is a whole different thing to the 5,000 that was earlier on. Uh, what are the differences? There's a whole lot of them. They were there for three days, not just one. There were 4,000, not 5,000. They were in a different place. He didn't say sit down on the grass. Maybe there wasn't grass around at that time of the year. The food in the lunchbox that they started with was different. And there were seven baskets, not 12 baskets left over. It's clearly a different event for different people with a different message. The other message, when he, ate, when he fed the 5,000, was for the... It was for the shepherd of Israel, for his lost sheep. The early feeding miracle was for the shepherd of Israel, for his lost sheep. But this feeding miracle is for those who were far off. The Gentiles, the nations, those who would come and join Israel as part of the new kingdom of heaven. Jesus was making a kingdom for anyone from anywhere. They just needed to be like the Canaanite woman. They just needed to realise that Jesus is the Messiah. They just needed to worship Jesus as Lord. And so as we come to the end right now, we are seeing that there are two different responses to Jesus. We see the Pharisees from Jerusalem. They criticised Jesus and they criticised his disciples because they wouldn't keep the human-made traditions of ritual hand-washing. Their Messiah is right there in front of them and they're squabbling over silly traditions. But then there's the other response to Jesus. It's the Canaanite woman from outside Israel who recognised that Jesus is Messiah and who trusted in him as Lord. He becomes her Messiah as she disregards the traditions about who can and can't come to Christ. Now this records a situation in a different time in the history of God's work in the world as we see here the fulfilment of the rejection of Jesus by Israel. But as we read this today, nearly 2,000 years later, we are naturally forced to make a decision about how we respond to Jesus. Do you push him away because he doesn't fit your way of doing church? Do you push him away because he doesn't fit your way of doing life? Or do you go to him 
begging for mercy, following him as Lord. Amen.